Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. This is a prayer from Thomas Merton. Oh, Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually following your will. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. Jesus of Nazareth was known in the first century for being an apocalypter, an apocalypter, that's a German word, for someone who is utterly convinced of the non-progressive, the non-progressive nature of human history. Uh, Jesus Christ flatly denied that history would be some everlasting upward climb of incremental betterment that would end with a human-forged utopia. He was far too realistic for that. He really understood the human condition as principally paralyzed and thus unable to fulfill its grandest wishes and desires. And so Jesus, the apocalyptor, uh, believed that history was marching in a rather dismal direction, but that it would ultimately be interrupted and intervened with by the miraculous power of God to set the thing right uh, for our everlasting and supreme benefit. And Luke chapter 12 is all about this. Luke chapter 12 is part of, it's not the whole thing, our reading tonight, but it's part of Jesus' lecture on the apocalypse, on the coming of the Son of Man, to cite verse 40 of God's colossal intervention. Uh, But for Jesus, this apocalyptic perspective did not in fact make him an anxious mess or depressed. Instead, it freed him up, gave him a sense of perspective that really guided his inner emotional life. And he thinks the same can happen for us. It made him free to think differently about the entanglements that we so often get well entangled by. And so for Jesus Christ, apocalypse births generosity. I shall say it again. Uh, The apocalypse births generosity. And so I want to speak uh, tonight about the generous father and the generous trainees uh, in light of the apocalypticism of Jesus of Nazareth. So we will begin with the generous father, and I'm only going to be speaking tonight 
uh, about verses 32 through 34. But please take up your bulletins. Let's dig in to the, uh, the endless depths of the Word of God because he has something for you tonight in this passage, uh, something rich and vibrant that actually can impact the rest of your days. So uh, this is the generous father. Jesus kicks off his lecture on the apocalypse with a very unconventional statement. He says, this is the first verse in our passage, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, I I like how he begins, fear not. Uh, I think that's a little bit funny because everything that he's then going to talk about is utterly terrifying, right? He's speaking, after all, about the apocalypse, not on like poodle grooming or something. He's speaking about the apocalypse. He's essentially saying to the disciples, your world and the entire world is about to change and about to change permanently. Nothing you know will be predictable in the future. All of your plans will by necessity be thwarted. Everything will change. But I don't want you to worry about that. (laughs) Fear not, he says. Fear not. Well, how can we fear not? I mean, we're afraid of almost everything, right? If you get a surprise medical bill in the mail for $743, you will fear, right? And by the way, that will happen. Don't you get those sometimes like eight months after you've had a surgery and you think, I'm in the clear. The insurance company covered it. And then you get five bills in the mail, like one for $11 and one for $47 and one for $7,000, right? And... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, then you'll start to worry. Where's the money going to come from? Or, uh, or what's going to happen with my middle child who is completely rebelling against everything that I tried to instill and she's not interested in talking with the family anymore and she's shacking up with some dude who's a complete loser. Uh, but what's going to happen with her? Or what's going to happen with our, with our 401k, which is completely tanking right now because the market is so dreadful? What's going to happen with gas prices? What's going to happen with my company? We're afraid of all sorts of things that are sort of mini versions of the apocalypse within our own personal lives and dimensions. Well, Jesus says to you and says to me, in light of future cataclysmic events, in light of those things which utterly change everything that we believe and know, he says, I don't want you to be afraid. Fear not. It's the same thing, by the way, that was said via the angel to Mary whenever there was great upheaval in her life. She was about to give uh, give birth to the Son of God. It was the same thing that was said to the shepherds when they discovered the Christ child who was going to change the world. Whenever the world is about to be changed, God always says, Fear not. I don't want you to be afraid because someone greater than the world is here. You think everything's changing? You think that means your foundation is ruined? It isn't. Because I'm your foundation, not your context. Your context is always changing, but I don't change. And you're rooted in me, not your context. And so he says, fear not, and then gives them a reason to fear not. Fear not because the Father is about to be lavishly generous with you. The Father is about to give you the kingdom give you the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, the kingdom of God, as you may know, is the predominant theme in all of Jesus's uh, public ministry, uh, particularly, of course, in his parables. Uh, Jesus is often speaking about this invasion technique, this ageless, endless, defileless empire that has invested itself within a decaying world. And he calls it the kingdom of God. Uh, And Jesus' understanding of this, of course, goes back to the beginning, because in Genesis, God instantiates within the uh, the new world, uh, a, a sense of his immediacy, his presence in this garden. And the garden represents order and creativity. Uh, a structure and equilibrium. 
Everybody is bonded to one another. There is nothing that thwarts the relationship between humanity and humanity's maker and man and woman and man and women in the earth. Everything is bonded together beautifully, working out harmoniously. However, because of the satanic incursion of the great lie that God has been, been holding out on you, and you could be better than you are if you just sunk your teeth into the dark sacramental fruit. If you just took one taste, you could have everything that God is withholding from you. And people fall for that, and they wish to sort of excel past the divine throne. Instead, they plummet into self-obsession and chaos and sin and darkness and blight and everything that's wrong and wicked in the world. And so that kingdom of God becomes obscured with the kingdom of the serpent. Well, Jesus then enters the picture many years later to reassert God's domain in the present time. So Jesus comes with the message that the kingdom of God is here. And principally, he meant that the kingdom of God is here in me, in the Son of God, in the King. Remember, the word Christ, after all, uh, means anointed one, Mashiach, and that's a reference to kings. Jesus, when he's called Christ, well, that's a royal title. The king is here to bring about this kingdom. And if you ever want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, ask, what does Jesus Christ look like? What does he do? That is what the kingdom looks like and what the kingdom does. Uh, and, and we see this uh, very clearly in Jesus' ministry. What does the king do? What does the kingdom do? Jesus takes ailing people and cures them. That's the kingdom. Jesus takes ignorant people and teaches them truth. That's the kingdom. Jesus takes morally devastated people and pardons them all. That's the kingdom. Jesus takes arrogant people and humbles them. That's the kingdom. Jesus takes those who are in the clutch in the grasp of evil and casts out their demons. That's the kingdom. Jesus takes outcasts and includes them. That's the kingdom. And Jesus takes renegades and gives them a brand new path and new dignity. That is the kingdom of God. But ultimately, that kingdom expressed in those in, in that myriad of ways is demonstrated most visibly, most clearly at the culmination of Jesus's life, which is at the cross where Jesus lays down his life completely and lets everything go, lets himself be annihilated by this world's evil power. Uh, and that would have been the conclusion outside the miracle of the resurrection, but he lets himself go entirely. This is his most princely, most kingly, most royal act. We know that because of the sign that was ironically hung above his head as he writhed on the hardwood of the cross, which is, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This is what the world does to God the king, right? But nevertheless, maybe that was meant to be ironic and hurtful. It certainly was, in fact, but it was speaking a great truth. He was never more kingly than at that moment where Jesus, the king, gives that kingdom sacrificial love away without boundaries, without hesitation, and he goes all the way to the point of death on the cross for your sake and for mine. Uh, and so that's the kingdom. Whatever is embodied in Jesus of Nazareth and shown through his cruciform love is the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus says you don't have to be afraid because everything that is wrong about the world and twisted about your own experience is about to become unmade in the work of the Son of God who overthrows evil, who pardons sin, who raises the dead. That's what he does. And so he says, fear not, little flock, because for that little flock, the apocalypse is not fearful, but beautiful.
The apocalypse is beautiful because, friends, the apocalypse means the end of your inner torture. It means that the torquemadas in your life ultimately lose, the ailments that you struggle with ultimately dissipate. It means the mending of broken bodies, the uprooting of riots and invasions. The kingdom means the closing of companies that poison our soil with cancer-causing compounds. It means the overturning of bankruptcy, the unmaking of bulimia, the end of miscarriages, the overthrow of political and religious abusers, the drying of tears. It is a world that matches the character of its king. That is the kingdom of God, and it is God's delight to give it to you for free. Not to charge you for it, but to give it away. Side note, important theological side note, the kingdom of God is known, this language was given to us by the Reformed tradition, for which I'm very grateful. The kingdom of God is both already and not yet. What does that mean? The kingdom of God is already clearly manifesting itself in Jesus of Nazareth and in his church. The kingdom can be glimpsed here. And yet it is not yet here in its vastness and in its fullness because the second coming of our Messiah has not yet arrived. Nevertheless, friends, we are beginning even now to get glimmers and glimpses and tastes and samplings of this kingdom that is to come. It is the gift of the generous Father, a kingdom which will eventually unmake all of your damage. All of it. Every last bit of it. And Jesus, in fact, teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places to pray that this would begin to manifest itself. Every service, at the end of our service, we pray an apocalypse into being. We pray an apocalypse because the Lord's Prayer is an apocalyptic prayer. You remember the words. It's about the kingdom, right? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, finish it, on earth as it is in heaven, right? So please, like, right now. Because the truth is, we can't all wait until we die. That we need help right now. We need help in the present. Yet we need, in terms of the ultimate grand scheme of things, complete rescue. But we need a little help right now. Because you, if you're being honest, need a little help. For your, if you're a single person, you need help right now. If you're in a family, you need help right now. If you're aging, you need help right now. If you're horrifically depressed, you need help right now. If you, if you are grieving the, 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 uh, a child who has just gone in the wrong direction, you need help right now. And that prayer is all about, please release a little kingdom energy right here and right now, because you're a generous father who delights in giving the kingdom to his flock. Yeah. So that's point one. We have a generous father, a generous father. And that is, the, of course, the foundation for all sorts of moral development within uh, God's own kingdom and God's own citizens. So now let me talk about the generous trainees that Jesus is raising up in light of this announcement from the generous father. In light of the generous kingdom of God, Jesus is teaching his trainees the economics of heaven, the economics of the kingdom in terms of selling, giving, and investing. Selling, giving, and investing. This is what he says in verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Talks about selling. Sell your stuff. Jesus was convinced, uh, unlike most of us most of the time, Jesus was convinced that possessions can possess. That 
what you own eventually begins to own you. And anybody here who has more than two cars, you know what this is like, right? Because one of them is always at McCandless's, right? It's always breaking down, right? Your stuff eventually owns you. What happens, for example, the moment that you, re you receive um, a break from the feds uh, during tax season and you get $2,800 back from the government because you overpaid, you tell me what happens. Your, something about your bathroom goes, right? Some, some electrical work needs to be done in the house, and, it, and they charge you $2,800. And so it's a complete, it's a complete wash. Um, but that's what happens when you give yourself over to possessions. They eventually possess you. They eat away your energy, your money, your time, your concern. This just happens time and time again. And so Jesus is, is a bit of a minimalist. He is saying that um, it really might be better if you, didn't own, uh, if you didn't own as much as you own. That's what he's saying. So sell your stuff. Then he says, give to the needy. He connects those two ideas, give to the needy. In, or, in other words, he sees you as a potential agent for minimizing the suffering of the world. He gives us such dignity here. He's saying, look, you've been given some stuff that you, in truth, don't really need. But there are other people around you. By the way, there are people sitting in this room who need some of the things that you have just to make it. Uh, and so he says, give to those who are in need, who are in distress, because you really could be a person who saves their uh, day, saves their year, saves uh, the next 10 years through acts of generosity. Incidentally, if you ever want to do this, I have people that reach out to me, and Don does too at times, uh, who are in financial crunches. And one of the ways that you can help with that immediately is to give to the discretionary fund of the church, which can grant people all sorts of help. So if you're interested in that, you could just write a check with discretionary fund on the memo line, and we'll make sure that that goes to the right people anonymously, right? Yeah. But give away. And then he says invest, right? So he says there are some things that you ought to invest, but he talks about it in terms of investment in heaven. If you want to hoard, because we, we all have that capacity to you know, safeguard some things, how about you hoard in heaven? Give everything that, uh, that, that you've got to the purposes of heaven. Now, what is heaven? Uh, heaven is the place where your investments can't go wrong, right? It's not like your 401k, which just sunk. Instead, everything is preserved there because nobody can steal from heaven and there is no defilement in heaven and nothing rots in heaven. Um, and so uh, th this is uh, incredibly important to, to see life as um, composed of various goods, but some goods pass away and some goods persist. For example, I am looking out upon an audience right now of things that persist, rather of people who persist. Right, because all of us in this room, made of the image of God, will persist past the point of death. Right, So all of you are the treasures of heaven in so many ways. And all of the Christian virtues that you exemplify in terms of compassion and love and integrity and honesty and truth and forbearance are all part of the kingdom of heaven that persist. Anything that we can do to support fellow image bearers and anything we can do to exemplify the nature of heaven is an investment in the kingdom of God. Uh, which which uh, leads me to this point about this structure. I am so glad to be in this structure. Not just because it's pretty, and not just because the acoustics are really great, and the stained glass is sort of minimalist and yet cool. I kind of, I'm kind of into that, and the air conditioning is terrific. Again, I'm going to keep mentioning it. I really like that, especially if you're wearing all this polyester, you would like it too. Um, but ultimately, you do know that this is just a casing for the church, right? This is not the church. This is a casing 
the church, the eternal family of God is right here in front of me. Like it's you and you're worth the world, right? But it's about you. And so in this church, we seek to invest in you because you're the treasury of heaven. Like it's you, yeah. But not to get caught up in things that are secondary or tertiary, yeah. Um, and we can do this, of course, very easily. We can do it in, in terms of status or financial gain or a hope for retirement or promotions or degrees or book sales or your ratings on rateyourprofessor.com. Never read that, by the way. Um, uh, or, or the, the, but all of that stuff, by the way, is sinister piffle. It, it completely dissolves. It's at, really, at the end of the day, when it comes to God, those things just fade. They fade away. In fact, when we die, no one will talk about those things. <laughs> they just go away with us, right? But there are some things that persist. You persist, and all the love in your life persists. Well, I have a story to tell you about Jim Carrey, of course, yes. That during the 2016 Golden Globes award ceremony, sort of a, a second-tier uh, prize for film actors, a notable comedian, Jim Carrey, was asked to be a presenter of an award. And he was called to the stage by a very enthusiastic uh, announcer who said, and now, two-time Golden Globe Award winner, Jim Carrey, and everybody cheered. Well, Jim, casually and very weirdly, unsurprisingly, rose to the stage and said, thank you. It's true. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. No. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey getting some well-deserved shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't dream just any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would all finally be true. And I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. I mean, if you blew up our solar system, you wouldn't be able to find human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. <laughs> the crowd was laughing at first, but then they got oddly quiet, right? <laughs> Realizing the refreshing and nay prophetic perspective that he offered in that room. Just so good. Well, friends, this is something about the generous father who trains his apprentices to be similarly generous, to learn the joy of giving life away, giving our substance away so that we can ameliorate the suffering of the world. You really can do that, you know. We can all do that, and then everybody gets lifted up. Well, Jesus knew something that very few of us want to face, you know, that the world is over. Really, the world with all of its plastic grandeur will soon melt away, and it will be entirely replaced with the undying, benevolent kingdom of God. And since that Father is so generous to give that kingdom to us, it's best to begin now to learn what it means to live into that generosity. So I'm going to give you a concluding principle, and then I'm done. Here it is. My concluding principle to all of us, a lesson we need to learn and relearn, is to live in light of the end of the world. To live in light of the end of the world. And to realize that only what ultimately matters lives on. 
I have a friend uh, who is quite a zany fellow who uh, very sadly in his mid-50s uh, was diagnosed with a very severe, very aggressive intestinal cancer. They discovered the cancer very late, gave him three months to live, but due to the surprising, uncanny, even miraculous results of some experimental medication, he's still around. Years later, got to see his grandchildren uh, grow up, um, got to uh, see the successful sale of his business, now retired. He wrote this to me. A belly full of cancer taught me the meaning of life. A person thinks and behaves differently when they are told that they are about to die. You don't care about election results or whether or not the bread went stale or the salsa went bad. You don't yell at teenage drivers because who cares if somebody occasionally forgets to use a turn signal. My illness caused me to do some wild stuff. I made amends to Meg, his ex-wife, and I sought out my son, whom I hadn't spoken to since that fight when he was 18 years old. And I sold my Camaro, since it wasn't looking in a few months like I'd need a Camaro anymore, and I didn't want to be buried in it. I put away my diplomas because I got sick of staring at them. After all, what does a master's degree in chemistry matters when it is chemo that is killing most of your body? I set up financial trusts for my grandchildren, and then I gave a bunch of money to Epiphany, his church. I think God was probably due for some back payments. I've never felt better than I did when I was covered in red radiation rashes, and when I couldn't eat much, and when I lost all my muscles, and when I thought daily that my death was imminent. A belly full of cancer certainly puts everything in perspective. And it's a, it's a bit of a mini apocalypse in his life, but it, of course, points to a bigger one, that none of us make it out of here alive. And maybe it's best. I think it's best to live like it's the end of the world. Let me challenge you with this line. It's certainly a challenge to my own self. How about we begin to engage with other people like they have a belly full of cancer? And how about we think of ourselves that way too? Simply meaning recognizing that our time may in fact be imminently ending, that this world will not last forever as it is. We have the promise and pledge of Jesus Christ for that. I think if we did that, assumed that everybody was hurting a lot more than we think they are, I guarantee that we would be far more generous with our speech as well as our behavior. Friends, Jesus gives to us the economics of the kingdom of God to give things away, to treasure up things that are loved by heaven, things that persist. And so when you value your fellow image bearers in this very room and in this town, you invest in heaven. When you forgive someone in this room for some offense, you invest in heaven. When you spread good gossip about somebody's best qualities, you invest in heaven. When you recognize your faults and confess them openly, you invest in heaven. And anything that is of God and reflects God lasts forever in the kingdom. We are here tonight in the name of a God who generously oversteps his bounds and intervenes, who gives you the kingdom along with its veritable king. Everything is yours. That is what God is giving to you. You recover. You recover completely. That is the good news of the gospel. You are given no less than everything. 
and awash in God's generosity, you are sure to thrive. I bet my life on it. Amen. They took your life. They could not.